everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 23rd, 2022. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm a filmmaker. I'm here with George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with filmmaker Todd Blankenship. Hello. Uh, George is also a filmmaker and producer and editor-in-chief, <laughs> and I just forgot to say <laughs> I was title. drinking coffee. That's why there was a oh. delay. Sorry about that. And then uh, filmmaker and writer, presently on retreat, Gigi Hawkins. Hi. I missed you guys last week. Missed we missed you too. too. I love writing where being in retreat is a good thing. You know, yes. in, in battle, you don't want to be in retreat. Right. But like as a writer, being in a retreat. Yeah. You retreat um, and then you like sometimes go to battle with yourself. But it usually is good. It's good retreat. It's the retreat to retreat. move forward. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever been on a writing retreat. But it, it's like one of those things that sounds like it would be like just like heaven on earth. But then like. When, when I really think about it, I'd probably just be like mentally at war with myself the entire time. Can I? I mean, jump? as opposed to your day-to-day life where you're not <laughs> mentally at war with yourself. I don't want to be on a writer's retreat. I just want to retreat, period. The word yeah. sounds so good right now. Yeah, well, it's very hard to let yourself retreat, period. Mm. But right now I'm in a lab, so retreating within my own apartment. But I did go to this writer's retreat. It was a, another lab in Italy. and. I thought I would come out mentally exhausted and I came out so nourished. And I think part of it was that there were just like eight women and our mentors sitting around eating dinner and drinking wine for like hours and talking about story, but also like relaxing. So the Europeans are doing something right when it comes to retreating and their annual sort of like month off vacations. And we should just lean into that. Also, I mean, everybody loves Coppola, and Coppola hasn't been canceled yet, I hope. Uh, Although his kids were doing NFTs, which is suspicious. (laughs) But Coppola always had a writer's retreat in Belize. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like you could sign up for it at Zootropa. It was always out of my budget, but I was like, two weeks of writing at the Coppola Resort in Belize sounds like a really nice place to write. Yeah, it's funny. I was was just thinking about that. Like, uh, what what is my ideal, like, writing spot vibe? And... For whatever reason, like Belize, like tropical stuff doesn't pop into my head. Like I want to go, I want to be in like a haunted, like dank, moldy cabin. Yeah. That's what I want. <laughs> like yes. where, where Nicolas Cage lived in the movie Pig. Like I want that. <laughs> <laughs> What's his face? The guy who wrote Kafka. Kafka's thing was all I want is to be at the bottom of a well. And I want someone to lower a bucket of food once a day and take out my slop so I can write. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. Like, no distractions, bottom of a well, you see sun for half an hour in the middle of the day, and you write. I can see that. Yeah, I can get with that. Just writing okay, with a slot we bucket. We haven't even done our topics yet today, guys. We're, like, totally doing this out of order. Okay, our topics today, we have to talk about it, the People's Joker. We are going to discuss People's Joker. And then we're going to talk about sex scenes in movies. We're in a post-intimacy coordinator world, and I think it's really exciting. I mean, we're specifically going to talk about it in Game of Thrones because it's interesting that it's happening there. But also, you know, some people have been working in sex scenes lately and like, you know, it's a different animal than it was whether or not you're hiring a coordinator. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get to the sexy times, let us talk about The People's Joker. If you do not know what The People's Joker is, it was the biggest hit out of Toronto this year. Toronto's the big September festival, right? Uh, TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival is a big deal. In some ways on the international market, it's like of Sundance south by tribeca size like just because it's in canada doesn't mean it's inferior in any if anything <laughs> because it's in canada it like probably way better they're probably politer um, at least nicer yeah yeah uh and they have weirder snacks at tim hortons 
And I think that Tim Hortons has sponsored it sometimes, which I find ridiculous. I love Regardless, that. moving on from that, this year at TIFF, there's a film there that screened, it was supposed to screen three times, it only screened once, and then they stopped. Apparently, one of the reviewers, when they were watching it at its first screening, their notes included the note, this film will never screen publicly again. And it's called The People's Joker, and it is a film written by, written, directed, starring a creator who used to work as an editor. We always love the journey from other crafts into directing on this podcast because, you know, a lot of people like to direct. Many people do other crafts on the way, so that's always a story we like to tell. Who has chosen as their directorial debut a film that like managed to make it into Sundance? I mean, into TIFF, which is huge, and created by Vera Drew, and it is a people's Joker. So it is it is a film about like using the characters of the Joker and Harley Quinn in a format that. The filmmaker's claim and worked with a lawyer to be sure that they were safe under qualifies under parody and parody is legal. Like there's this whole thing sometimes where it's like, you can't have anybody else's characters in your movies. And it's like, that's not true. Like parody and magic fall under fair use, which is the magic thing is crazy. There was a, there was a magician in Congress in the middle of the 20th century. And there are all (laughs) sorts of rules that let you do shit for magic. Like, you can deface money for magic. Like you're not legally allowed to deface money unless you're doing it for magical purposes because of, I should know the name of this magician senator, but like they should have made jokes about that on Arrested Development. I'm disappointed that they did not. I love that there's just like a magic advocacy group that has had more sway in our government than- <laughs> Yeah, they've, they've had more power than uh, reproductive freedom groups. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is a film in which Vera Drew plays a character that is sort of, a mashup of the Joker and Harley Quinn, the people's Joker. And they worked with a lawyer from the beginning to make sure it would fall under fair use and parody. That was like very clearly part of the point. And, you know, at one point they made a trailer that was like, come see this illegal film. And then they were like, we are being very clear that we're using illegal just to be controversial, but we do not feel this film to be illegal. It is definitely not going to be illegal. And yet after screening once at TIFF, they pulled it for the second two screenings because of a letter that was not an official legal cease and desist letter from Warner Brothers, but apparently a aggressive letter from Warner Brothers that indicated that they did not feel like it would be in the best interest of Tiff to keep showing the rest of the film. And so Vera, apparently the decision was Vera's, which I respect, was like, hey, you guys have been great and are screening my film and you guys are awesome and I don't want to put you in this position where you have to decide, so I'm just going to pull it preemptively, which like, I respect. Tricky decision to make. They are now determined to find a distributor and get this film out to the public because the film was designed to make it to the public. Can I throw out a few quotes from those who've seen it? Okay. So in the reception, here's what Variety said. Reflecting the deliberately outrageous, ironically distanced Variety found in internet memes and Adult Swim series using a millennial meta irony to critique institutions once held dear. I'll add another one. In an age where corporate IP has become a de facto religion in global cinema culture, People's Joker is a blasphemous Molotov cocktail of a movie with a unique and valuable point of view. And it's hilarious too. Another one. Underneath the satirical madness lies a genuinely moving story of self-acceptance, self-love, and the inspiring act of an artist stepping into her power. All jokes aside, the people deserve to see it. I mean, I really hope 
We all get to see it. I do too. I feel like whatever this is, it sounds perfect. <laughs> it sounds like the movie for the time. What I understand of its origins are that one of the co-writers and Drew were re-editing Joker. And while doing the re-edit, Drew sort of had this idea to create some kind of different project around it. Talked about maybe re-editing all the Batman movies, then crowdsourced this budget and got tons of artists to provide artwork. And the movie involves, beyond Vera Drew, Scott Ackerman, great comic, Tim Heidecker, great comic, Bob Odenkirk, Another great comic. <laughs> so there's a lot of talent happening here. It's just I I need to see this. Yeah, that's, that's wow. my thing. Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea it had all those people in it. I didn't know. And I honestly, I I didn't really like the the tra- the trailers. <laughs> sick. It's such a fun trailer. Uh, yeah, I I really got to see this. And, and I think it it sounds like it sounds like we will. Right. I mean, it sounds like they're gonna find some way to make it seeable. I I, I don't. I can't. It's funny that they didn't send a, like a, uh, so you said it wasn't a cease and desist or it was? It was not an official cease and desist, apparently. It was like it a, was, it was like a, hey, you know, pony up because we're probably going to have to come for you type thing. I, so I, the letter is not public. All I know is that I have the, the statement I read was that it was not an official cease and desist because threatening legal action comes with like some baggage, but it was a, it was an opening to a conversation about why they shouldn't keep showing the film. And that was enough. Mm. Um, wow. I, I mean, look, when, you, when you're in a universe where there's only like four media companies left and you're Toronto International Film Festival, it's really complicated when one of the four media companies is like, hey, we might not be your friend anymore. Like, that's really, it's yet another problem with media consolidation is the complicated position it puts festivals in where they're like, oh, wow, we might not be able to keep being friends with this person. That'll be a bummer. So I think that there's a lot going on here. I think it'll come out, whether or not it comes out. You know, I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen Los Angeles Place itself. It's a movie that uh, was unreleasable for different reasons. If you haven't seen Los Angeles Place itself, you should all go see it. It is a film, a basically a film professor at CalArts made a film in which he cut together three hours of every time Los Angeles appeared in a movie. Mm-hmm. And there would be whole sections of like Los Angeles subbing in for Canada. And then whole sections of like, Los Angeles, like Canada subbing in for LA, like Toronto, but it's mm-hmm. set. And like this, like it's three hours of this film professor giving a lecture about the meaning of the city of Los Angeles, looking at film clips. It is maybe a thousand different film clips. It is unreleasable. So he did some like festival screenings and he did some like pop-up screenings. And then eventually it made its way to this place you guys might've heard of called the internet. <laughs> and it just sort of like snuck out to the internet and no one knows how it snuck out to the internet. But now it is just sort of like out there and you can go, you can watch Los Angeles plays itself and the rights have never been cleared, but it is watchable. The section on like Los Angeles subbing for Tokyo is so much fun because like LA subs for Tokyo in among many other places, Kill Bill in Kill Bill, LA subs for Tokyo. I was just shooting LA for Hong Kong or yeah. The other thing I think about with this two things, one, I realize. I actually know the DP of this movie. He was a DIT on my feature. <laughs> He's done well since then. And he is an awesome guy. And I'm going to try very hard to get him to come on the podcast and talk about this movie. But that aside, 
This reminds me of House of Cosby's, kind of, because you're talking about Los Angeles plays itself and House of Cosby's was before they did Rick and Morty and Community and all these other things. Justin Roiland did this thing called House of Cosby's and it was a short where it was totally parody. It was about like a cloning. It was a sitcom cartoon about a cloning machine. If you want to find it on the internet now, it's watchable again. It was pulled for a while. It's very funny. And it was kind of his, what brought him onto the scene. Uh, And it's just a cloning machine makes a bunch of Cosby's and they're all like living in this house together. And it's very silly. And Bill Cosby sent a very angry cease and desist. So much has changed since then. (laughs) Nobody's going to I remember when it happened, it was like, man, I mean, nobody knew. We didn't know that much about Bill Cosby. But at the time, it was like, man, Bill Cosby's a jerk. Like, because it was so unnecessary. And it was such a little, it was just a little YouTube video in 2006 or something. And it was like funny. And it was a cartoon. And it was totally parody. Mm -hmm. It's like, but anyway, they had to pull it. But it's back. And where's Bill Cosby now? So anyway, I have a feeling, I have a feeling that the people's Joker will be out eventually. I, I hope think, that it comes out, out as like a VHS that is being passed around from friend to friend. And that's how we get to watch it. It feels like this underground cult thing that we can all join. Uh, but I have zero doubt that this director will have any trouble working. I bet that they have many things lined up for them after all this buzz. Like this is the most exciting thing to happen to the indie world in a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, we talk a lot on this podcast about the various forms of marketing yourself and cutting through the noise and all yes. that sort of stuff. And uh, I mean, in a in a weird way, this could be like probably one of the best things that could have happened for this film. And, you know, yes. potentially. So it's like, we it could have, you know, obviously exploded and and, you know, done really well or whatever. But at the same time, like, yeah, now there's like lore about it and, and, you know, everyone's talking about it. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it'll all work out in the end. But on the, you flip, know, I mean, uh, I was going to be counter there, but George, go first. I was going to say, it's a fascinating conflict in a way that we always want the things we can't have. Right. And it applies across the board. And so it creates this, this inevitable failure before you get in the room, whenever you have a project, which is that like, nobody wants something that's so available. So like you kind of, you're up against it automatically. And I think what you're pointing to is like, it's so hard to engineer that, like it can't be seen thing. Like it just happened, but now everybody wants it, you know, and everybody probably want to work, wants to work with this person and everybody wants to know more because it's banned. Like there's just this automatic interest. So it's sort of an interesting tool to roll around in your mind about like, how do I create scarcity when I'm basically desperate. Like everybody walks in, like everybody with a project or with an idea, it it is desperate, but you want to create a sense of like, I don't need it. Like I can walk away or like it's, you know what I mean? Like it's the hardest thing to do to pull that off, but they pulled it off because their thing became banned basically. So yeah, they, it's there. I also Let's think- Let's hear the counterpoint, Charles. Well, I'm just going to say, I think that the Hollywood- mainstream industry machine is not good with truly weird revolutionary shit. And so like, I think the kind of people where you see like, Oh, they did a million dollar indie and now they're doing a hundred million dollar Marvel. There are people who are making great million dollar indies who bump up to hundred million Marvel, but those million dollar indies are still very normal. They are very within like the subject matter might be interesting, but the storytelling is very traditional. Mm. And I haven't seen a lot of examples of people who do like truly weird shit 
that like blows up, but then that leads to the ability to have a mainstream career. And like the example that comes to mind is there's a documentary that came out in 2003, uh, Tarnation, directed by Jonathan Coet. That's great. Like everybody should go fucking see Tarnation. Like Tarnation is one of those movies where you're like, motherfucker. Like <laughs> you are a unique and distinct like voice with Tarnation. It is like, like, like you should. If I had a billion dollars, I would give him $10 million to make a movie just to see what the fuck happened. Because Jonathan Coet is like fascinating. And like you will look at his IMDb and he's still doing stuff, but he's doing like some music videos and like, you know, the the rocket ship into the top level. I don't think exists for the truly fucking weird or the truly fucking interesting or the truly fucking groundbreaking. Like, I think it's a different road. And like, I'm way more traditional. I don't think I could ever make anything like the people's joker. Cause it's just not, my brain doesn't work that way. And so like, I'm excited by it. Cause I'm like, yeah, but I'm also like, I don't know. It'll be the next steps for Vera Drew will be interesting. I mean, look, hopefully there's an Amazon show fully paid for Bezos of like Vera Drew gets to do whatever the fuck she, she wants. But like watching the industry over the last 20 years, like the true, like we're just going to break shit doesn't always lead to a fast rise up the ladder the way like, you know, a classically made, incredibly beautifully shot, touching indie feature can be where the subject is what's interesting. The fact that it is about someone from a marginalized group is what makes it different and unique, but it's still told very traditionally. Those tend to be the things. But when you're like literally using radical uh, tools to tell the story, it'll be interesting to see what next steps they're able to put together. But I don't even... Like the impression I'm getting right now is they're more worried about the movie getting out and less worried about what they're going to do next is the impression I seem to get. These are good points. I feel like Todd Field is an example of somebody who's a little bit like out there and breaking stuff. And like as genius as a lot of the work is, there's kind of harder to find the avenue, you know, like of just like even that in the bedroom was like a very traditional indie movie that did involve mashing together two pop culture characters into one. Like in the bedroom is like very good, but like, yeah, classic, straightforward indie drama. Yeah. I think it's real hard if you're really interesting. Like, if you're really out there, it's difficult, not impossible, difficult. Sad we lost John Luca Dar. That's what he was. There yeah. need to be more of those. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Moving on to our next subject working with intimacy on shoots. So, this has been in the news again. If we, if everybody remembers a few years ago, we uh, had a lot of conversations around this issue as, as sort of the Me Too movement sort of started to ripple out and people started talking about like uncomfortable experiences they've had in sex scenes and like, you know, sex is not leaving cinema. Uh, it has left mainstream cinema, but it's not leaving television anytime soon. Like it is part of the human experience and part of storytelling. And so there's going to be scenes that touch on that arena, but you know, all of the sudden sort of quite quickly, it went from a universe in which no one had heard of an intimacy coordinator to within a year or two, the default was you hire an intimacy coordinator to shoot a sex scene. I remember one year as a podcast, I was doing like an interview panel about this. And I asked like, how many people have used intimacy coordinators? And nobody, one person had, and two or three people who were working a lot were like, I still haven't even heard that term. And then like two years later, I was moderating another panel and everybody had like happened really quickly, which is great. We're all, uh, we're all a fan. Like I'm a fan of intimacy coordinators. I think it's a really useful thing. And the reason it's in the news again is we have a new Game of Thrones. If it, if there's Game of Thrones, there's going to be intimacy. That is yeah. part of the Game of Thrones ethos. But the new show is doing a really interesting job of like centering female characters and centering the struggle of female characters within a patriarchy. It's maybe bordering a little far on indulging too much in 
the trauma of childbirth, but maybe that's just an accurate depiction of how horrific medieval childbirth would have been. Um, Feels pretty on point with what it was like. Yeah. But then, you know, Sean Bean, Sean Beaned and went out there and was like, you know, because Sean Bean was in the original Game of Thrones, no spoilers, but his head gets cut off. And uh, he was like, we didn't need any intimacy coordinators when I'm shooting sex scenes. They ruin your improvisation. And uh, then everybody on the new Game of Thrones were like, no, it's totally great. I'm 18. It was totally nice to have an intimacy coordinator on the set with me while I was doing a sex scene. I'm 18. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just came out. uh, I worked with an intimacy coordinator one time, and then I just came out of shooting a a totally separate project, a very indie short film written by a woman, directed by me, produced by a woman, shot by a guy, and everyone else except for our our sound person ended up being women on set. Uh, But it was a sex scene, and we couldn't afford an intimacy coordinator, so it was a really interesting process of checking in throughout. But we actually, we essentially choreographed a dance, and we shot our short on our phones before we edited it together because we wanted to be so mindful of the of not being like let, let's just lay it on the table if you don't have if you're not being mindful about shooting your sex scene like that's just creepy and weird at this point and, and icky so we wanted to be very very intentional about how we were shooting it to the point that we were so well rehearsed and intentional with our production the day of shooting that it was like almost boring to like we were like should we be more stressed out but we had prepped so hard to to get it right and it cut together so seamlessly and the comedy it's a dark comedy the comedy works as well um and one thing i'll say about being on set is that we were so intentional and mindful and the actors were so communicative leading up to shooting and during the first half of shooting that uh, on the second half of the day when we were doing a, a totally different uh part of the the scene where there's they're no longer having sex everyone got the giggles because we were so like buttoned up before and then there was like this release at the second half of the day but it was it was really exciting to see how professional even on the indie set we could be and how everyone was was down to be that mindful so i think even if you can't afford an intimacy coordinator coordinator there are resources for figuring out what that process can look like and and you as the I assume people listening to this podcast are leaders in this space. And so it's up to you to be setting that precedent. Yeah. I think it's really cool to hear that anecdote or story because it means it is doable for people and achievable to be professional and buttoned up and do this the proper way on any level. A lot of times you feel like cutting corners and doing the indie thing and doing DIY necessitates that you skimp on some of these things that maybe are safer or preferable or in an ideal world. But it's also kind of like a, you know, it's a slippery slope. Once you start doing that a little bit, then, you know, you do it all the time. And then that's when bad things happen and bad experiences happen. And it sort of erodes the whatever it erodes whatever i'm not sure what the word is but like actual values or ethical values we want to uphold if there are <laughs> in the entertainment industry 
notoriously not great with that stuff. But like, if we want to be able to do that, then we should try to do it at every level, I guess is what I'm saying. So I think it's really cool that you pulled that off. I think on the major, on the, on the scale of Game of Thrones, like it's just absurd to say that it's unnecessary or that they shouldn't do it in this day and age. But we saw tons of backlash. Like when we on No Film School, we posted the story about Sean Bean and people were just kind of all over the place. Like it was a very hot button issue and we've continued to cover it as this has developed. And even with this new story, like people are all over the place on it. But it to me, it seems like just a no brainer if they have that kind of money. It's like the kind of thing where it's like, what would you choose not to have like, you know, a stunt coordinator? Safety measures? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. I really prefer just, to do my like, stunts without a coordinator so I can improvise a little bit more yeah. when I'm out there doing <laughs> stunt work. Uh, like, I just like the right. freedom to be like, maybe I turn my car this way. Maybe I turn my car that way. I don't know. I got to feel it in the moment. Kind of well, like it, flail as you fall a little bit and hit the ground a little extra hard and break yeah. a rib. Well, and, and I mean, I think, isn't the the kind of the main function of an intimacy coordinator to just sort of like make sure everyone's comfortable, like like talk through what's going to happen, kind of how to do things in ways that, you know, like it, it's like, I can't think of a single possible way that that would, I mean, I guess, I guess if you're planning out stuff you can't improvise as much but it, 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 to me it just sounds like it's like really primarily just making sure everyone's comfortable right yeah and you know the famous example of the opposite of that is the the movie blue is the warmest color where you know the actors came off of that incredibly traumatized by this director who was pushing them and pushing them and and exploiting them and and in that position you don't always feel like you have power or the ability to say no as talent. So I think an intimacy coordinator is there to to protect from that type of power abuse, obviously, but also make it feel like comfortable and safe so you can perform, you know, so you can act. And so you can get the shots that you need to craft a, a great scene. It's also just a good reminder that our industry should keep changing and evolving as we realize new things. There's a there's a habit people fall back on a lot of like, well, we, you know, we've been doing it like this way for for a long time and it's been fine. And it's like, well, sure, maybe it was fine or maybe nobody bitched because they were afraid of losing their job. I mean, we are a precarity based industry in which everyone at all times is worried about their next gig. So when we can try and like make a mass movement of saying like, no, what, what we're doing is not right. Let's do it differently. I think it's something worth paying attention to. Coming off of uh, watching Final Destination 3 last night, which was really great. If you haven't seen it, I also did a review in my high school newspaper of that movie. Um, but uh, they they took the time in that film to like get every shot that they needed so we could see the like, you know, the trickle down effect of bear with me this is going to be relevant of how the how death is going to get all these high schoolers and and i think similarly like if you are just as intentional when approaching a scene that has intimacy like the quality of the storytelling is just going to be better and more interesting and um and you have to be that technical about it like i i i believe so yeah i think i think it's like an ex exciting time. I think we're going to have just way more interesting when we when we do see scenes that like explore this. It just feels like it's going to be way more. We're going to see more things we haven't seen. 
better storytelling. And uh, yeah. I have never I mean, over-prepped it, for a shoot ever. <laughs> so anything right. asking that, me for more prep is a good thing. I think that it's like we block everything, right? Blocking is careful. Stunts and, and fight scenes are carefully done and engineered. And the better you get at that and the more choreography involved, the more exciting and dynamic and effective at telling the story within that action things become. And there has been in general, certainly in the mainstream, but I think across the board, like a move away a little bit from the sex scene in movies. We see less and less of it. Like, I think we've talked about it before, but if we haven't, or if you haven't heard us talk about it before on this podcast, like remember in the 1980s, how like even a mainstream action movie would have like full-blown sex scenes. Like that was a normal thing. You don't see that very much anymore. They had a very uh, like kind of toned down intimacy scene in Top Gun Maverick, but like the original Top Gun had a much more overt one and, you know, Terminator. Like, I mean, it was just like, it was constant, right? It was just a part of movies, like as much as fighting was and to a certain degree. And I think it's been, a, we, we've definitely shifted away. And it's almost like one of those things about Game of Thrones where it's like, yeah, you know, like we talked about it earlier, like Game of Thrones, there's going to be a lot of orgies and a lot of sex, but it's like HBO has always like consistently done that. If it's such a huge part of life and existence, it's weird to not have it be a part of our movies. And there's a way to do it that's not cheesy and like that not like it's it's not to me, it's not even just about being professional with those involved. It's also about like, can you do a good job? Like, is there a way to make them better and do a better job telling the story through that? Yeah, of course, always. Like our fights get better. Remember fights if you watch fight scenes in old movies and I love old movies, like they're not as good, right? Mm. We've gotten better at it. So, I don't know. It seems like something that we can push forward in multiple ways by by paying more attention. I also wonder if there will be I I feel like I've noticed some green writers and and filmmakers will sometimes sort of like feel that they need to put in nudity or sex to be edgy, which is really funny to me because I'm like, often I'll watch and I'll just be like, this is so not necessary for the story. I don't know why this is here. And, uh, and hopefully, especially like if film schools and, and people are just requiring, expecting intimacy coordinators on set for these, hopefully we see less bad sex scenes or unwarranted sex scenes or nudity nudity because it's like there's a cost associated with it. So does the story actually warrant it? That is definitely a thing. I, I like some, especially like, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's easy to like forget like what these, these things we put actors through, uh, like what it can sort of do to them mentally and stuff. And like, if it's, I, I could imagine if I was in a movie and like, you know, in the script, there was like a rather pointless to the story, you know, sex scene coming up. Like it would be like, I don't know, it'd just be on my mind a lot and stuff. Like, I, I feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be prudish about it or anything, but it is just like, sometimes I, I, I do see it and I'm like, man, I bet, I bet that was uncomfortable. And, and it didn't really move the story forward in any sort of way. But yeah, I, not having a, an intimacy coordinator, like to me, it's like as like silly as like, not like, if you can afford it and, and whatever, but like you, it's, it's just crucial. Like it's on the level of crucial as like, you know, having like a, someone who knows how to 
handled like certified for handling firearms and stuff like that. Like it's just you, you got to do it. I feel like. All right. Did we have an ask this week? I could ask a question. Yeah. Shoot. Ask a question. Okay. Let me segue into a sort of using that, uh, thinking about your story and the stories you're creating to ask a question. I'm wrapping up a project right now and I'm getting to the phase where I know I have to start making a decision about the next big project I want to undertake. So what's the next thing I want to write? How do you guys do approach your big sky, blue sky thinking when it comes to your next project? Huh? That's a great question. Hold on, I'm I'm trying to. Can you can you say that again? I, yes. Um, how when you're deciding what next project you want to write, for example, mm. um, that specifically, I'm figuring out what I want to write next as I hit a milestone with another project, and it's overwhelming. I'm like, how do I? I, I have a lot of trouble letting myself sit. Speaking about retreats, I have a lot of trouble letting myself like sit in a space that's like in the blue sky thinking way of like, I could tell any story I, in the world in theory, like uh, getting down. So, so the, the infinite like routes is, is daunting, I guess. Is, is yeah, that what you're saying? yeah, exactly. See, it's, it's funny. Cause like, I, I, I definitely, it's like those types of moments don't happen for me often because the way my brain works is very like, I am, it, it's it's very frustrating for me, but I'm very much so like a one kind of big project thing in my mind at a time person. And like, I've been stuck in this one thing for like the last four or five years. And so like hearing you being daunted by that, like I'm, I'm on like the other side where it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to like not have this on my mind and have like the, the ability to choose it from an infinite path of things or whatever. But I I just know when I get there I'm going to be like whoa like this is this is kind of freaky. It's funny because I'm going to actually quote another no film school writer. So for me it's usually pretty like there's usually something that I'm just grinding on where I'm like ah oh, I have to write about this. I have no choice like this is the thing. Um but every once in a while I do have open sort of things and uh Jason Hellerman who's been on the podcast a few times and writes a lot for the blog a great piece of advice, which is whenever you're struggling between multiple projects, pick the one where you know how it ends. And mm. it's so like simple and practical and like, oh yeah, like I can always work backwards from a good ending and make the rest of the project work. But if I'm like, oh, I've got this idea about something, but I have no idea like where it's going or where it's ending, that will be more work and longer to get there, which doesn't mean great projects can't come from that. I mean, famously, shoot the piano player came from a single image like uh, Truffaut have this vision in mind of a car sliding down a snowy hill. And that was it. That was the start mm. of shoot the piano player. And that was like, that's not an ending. It's in the middle of the movie, but like wanted to see that image figured out how to get there. So much of the advice about this is always like, well, which one sings to your hearts and like go to the <laughs> woods and light a candle on three trees and see which one the <laughs> candle. And it's like, Jason Elliman's like, which one, do you know how it ends? Like pick the one with the best ending mm. and work backwards. And I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, okay, practical, love it. And, you know, there's only been a couple of times lately where I'm working on Blue Sky stuff where that was a thing. But, like, there, like it popped into my head as being, like, such practical advice. Because the problem, you, what you can't do is you can't try and chase the trend. I remember after Twilight, holy fuck, did I read a lot of vampire specs. Yeah. And they it's were like, very hot at the time. They, they had their fucking moment. And, like, 
Don't know if any of them got made. Don't think any of them did. Maybe one of them got turned into a TV show, but it was like, you know, there's a moment where like something breaks and people are like, let's do this. But by the time your shit's done, something else is broken. So you really have to just stick with your thing. This is, I don't have a lot of actual, like I lived in it and I learned something and I can share it industry experiences. I mean, maybe it sounds like I do, but what I really, one anecdote I truly have that I really am like, man, that was a lesson. And it's exactly what Charles just said. When I was working as a writer more and had a lot of interested parties and a couple of things I was working on and things were going well, there was like interest and heat around some stuff I was doing. And uh, one project was kind of a a horror comedy, right? Mm -hmm. And the managers and reps I had at the time literally the weekend uh, Zombieland came out. So this was a long time ago, folks. And everybody was like, gotta do that. It's huge now. That movie blew everybody away. And like, that's the thing. And that's what you got to focus on and do it. And we were like, okay, okay. Yes. You're, you know, you're, we're new. We don't know. You know, that's smart. It's selling. By the time that project was done, all we were hearing was, it's really not something people are interested in right now. It's not something people are buying mm-hmm. anymore. Like, it's a really tough sell, that kind of thing. And like, it, so I just felt like I lived the true, like, don't follow the trend because it's going to change within a week, let alone within the time it takes to finish something. So if you're ever thinking about that, like, it's just totally like you could luck out, but like timing is all luck with that stuff. Like you can't possibly like, and there were other timing things that have worked out in my favor that were totally random. Right. But like that kind of thing was just like, by the time you're done, there's no way to to predict what will be the trend. Similarly, my advice, my thought, I've thought about this a lot is that I love the Jason Hellerman thing Charles said, but I was thinking about this recently. I I've had so many times in my life where I had ideas I was excited about, or I was like, what do I want to do? And like, there's so many different things I like, or that I'm thinking about, or movies I'd like to see. I think it would be smart to prioritize the things that you want to do the hard parts for, Mm -hmm. because that's the reality. Like, like think about what the writing will be. Think about what the worst part of any project is. Think about what the pitches will be. Think about what production would be like. Think about what like a, a cheap version of production would be like, like I would think about it like, what am I going to want to sit with when it's hard? Like, because every project, this more comes from people I've talked to as a filter, like throughout the years. But a lot of times people have to work for so long, like, like Todd is describing with one thing mm-hmm. before it, I was talking to the guy who uh, wrote and directed this movie Medieval that came out recently. We did a, a podcast with him. Like, I think he said 13 years. Check, you all have to check the interview to make sure. But I think he said something like that. Like, it was a project that started like 13 years ago. And of course, there were things in between. But like, that's like how long. And he, it was for him a labor of love and something he wanted to keep coming back to and working on. But that's like, that's crazy. So I think if you're committed to the hard parts and the slog, if you love, things about it so much that you're willing to fight through those things, then your odds of, of success are, are greater success in the sense of like completion, because 
it's so easy to walk away that if you like it for like, like, I don't really love this kind of thing, like then, or like, I don't love it enough to suffer, then I just think that it's going to be so easy to abandon. That's my take. I also think that there's an element of chaos to everyone's career. So, you know, Saw 2, directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman, who's gone on to like have a career. He, uh, he had written a script called The Desperate. Mm-hmm. Saw 1 became a huge hit. And there was a desire to have Saw 2 come out quickly the next year. And so people hunted around and found the script for The Desperate, which he had been trying to get made for a while. And people were like, you know, The Desperate could be Saw 2. And... You know, Saw 1 came out in 2004, Saw 2 comes out in 2005. They took the script that had been his passion project because he was excited about horror and that was his genre and he loved it and he'd written a thing that he was like, I am fucking excited about this shit. And then it just happened to fill a hole in the universe that needed to launch the Saw franchise. And like, that is not the worst way in the world to have your first film have a $150 million box office (laughs) off a $4 million budget and to go on to have a career. Where like so you know, he it, did not let his ego get in the way. He's like, yes, we'll make this in the Saw universe. Like that is fantastic. Yeah, and like you know, that original script was not written thinking. You know what I'm gonna motherfucking do? I'm gonna line up Saw two. Like yeah. literally, just wrote a script. Was excited about, regardless of the market, struggled to find it, and then had the moment where the market was like, oh, okay, market's ready. <laughs> Okay, this so. is I like I, I love all this advice and what I'm taking away from it is one there's an element of following your bliss uh but follow your bliss where you know the ending. That's actually the thing that has tipped the scale for me because I was like should I do this one or this one and one of them I know I know how I want it to end and at least I can start to work back back from there. So I'll uh I'll report back as um and then also um I will uh, revel in this time of retreat by going to a cabin in the woods uh, where my slop can <laughs> yeah, be carried just, in and out. Yeah, just take get your slop bucket going. <laughs> get a slop bucket, sort of sit with it. And um, yeah, I'll keep you guys posted. And look at the blue sky. And look at the blue sky. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. All right, everybody, that's been the No Film School Podcast. Uh, I'm on the internet at Charles Hayne. I'm making youtube stuff lately, so check me out on YouTube, but also on the Twitters and the Instagrams, but that'll mostly be political stuff. And, uh, you know, make movies and stuff. I'm Gigi Hawkins. I'm at Lost in Graceland. Um, and we're releasing our So Fucked It's Funny abortion access fundraiser sketches uh, over the course of this month. Um, so check them out at... On Instagram at so fucked it's funny. I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me on YouTube and Instagram at Am I a Filmmaker. And I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. You can find me on Twitter at George Edelman. You can find everything we talked about today and more at NoFilmSchool.com. But please like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think. We like answering our questions and Gigi's question today, but we'd love to answer yours too. So send them to us editor at nofilmschool.com. Also send us any thoughts you have or comments or weigh in with your own opinions because we love hearing from you in general. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube and all the other good stuff. And thanks so much for listening.